Another moving ceremony here at the Veterans Place at Gore Park in downtown Hamilton. I'm Bill Kelly. Uh, as uh, has become more tradition here at CHML, of course, broadcasting and carrying the Remembrance Day ceremonies from the Cenotaph at Veterans Place. And uh, again, just a, a wonderful crowd and a great turnout here today uh, to honor our veterans. And uh, once again, despite the weather, a great crowd here to honor our veterans. And that's remarkable to see that so many people out here. And as I mentioned, uh, actually, just before we uh, started the official part of the ceremony, uh, the number of school kids that are in attendance once again, which is a, a fabulous uh, sight to see indeed. As we've been talking with many of our guests, of course, about education and about talking about what happened and what veterans do. And uh, it's uh, it's an education I think we could all be part of, really. And uh, so good to see that. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisberger, who is also involved in the brief playing ceremony, of course, now joins us. Mr. Mayor, welcome back. Good to have you here. Yes, nice frosty day today. You're looking uh, semi, semi-warm. Uh, not really. <laughs> no, no, nor I. Uh, that's just the blood running out of my head. But a good turnout, notwithstanding. Uh, you know, with the uh, snow coming down, there are a good crowd of people here, all remembering uh, all the right things today. I, you know, I was amazed, you know, we've known each other for many, many years, and your heritage, of course, is Dutch. Yep. Um, and and the, the liberation of Holland, of course, was, was one of the, the great Canadian stories of, of World War II. And, and you, I know your family talked to you about that a lot. Yeah, my uh, my dad actually was interned or picked up in Holland and brought to the uh, German German arms camp. So it was forced, forced labor. And uh, my mother was uh, in Holland when liberation happened. And uh, she remembers a, a great celebration, a great party, and the gratitude for you know the Dutch to the Canadians is uh, is is very very strong. Uh, you know, it, right throughout the country, they uh, they educate the kids on the the great liberation and the uh, the great Canadian effort to help liberate uh, uh, Holland back then. And uh, you know, I think the gratitude continues between uh, Canada and Holland. And you know, the tulips come here every year and yep. uh, bloom in Ottawa as a result of the. Uh, one of the Queen's daughters, having spent time in Canada during during the war, so a lot of really strong connections and a lot of gratitude. Have you been back to Holland? Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. And uh, you know what? Uh, my my family actually very much involved with uh, the war effort back then. Uh, one of one of my uncles was in the uh, the underground that uh, that operated in Holland uh, for the time that it was uh, t- during the war years. Yeah. Uh, a lot of lot of horrific stories, and you know, my dad. Uh, up until the the last uh, m- few months of his life, never really spoke of the horrors that he saw while he was there, uh, but did share some uh, some of the stories, uh, you know, towards the end of his life. And you know what? All the people that were involved in the war all have horrific stories to tell, and uh, you know, a lot of them came back with uh, with a lot of burdens that they had to bear and and get on with their lives. And so, uh, you know, qu- quite admiring that they were able to do that and still have successful lives. Many of them. I, I can understand that, as we've talked to a number of veterans over the years that we've been doing this show down here on Remembrance Day, and um, it's, it's. I mean, you know, you, you hear the old cliche that war is hell, but for, to a, to us, it's an abstract concept. I mean, it, it, it's not happening. We don't have that sort of stuff in Canada. That doesn't happen here. But to actually be right there and see some of the atrocities and some of the, the, the activities that went on, and, and uh, it, it's just horrific, I guess. And that stuff, you, you never, obviously, you never forget that. But at the same time, I can understand some people saying, I just don't want to talk about it because it's just well, going to bring back memories. A lot of them came back and just wanted to park it somewhere and yeah. just forget about yeah. it and get on with their lives. Some of them could and, and did it quite successfully. And others, uh, you know, could, could not do that. And, and had you know struggles in their lives, and I, I remember some of my dad's uh, friends when they when they worked at International Harvester had uh, had shell shock, and uh, they were still suffering from that uh, while they were working, and they had a very difficult time kind of managing through that. 
And you see the uh, the effects of war today. I mean, we have uh, we've got veterans that have been in Afghanistan and a um, number of war theaters, and you know, a lot of them come back and have uh, some significant challenges that they have to face. And so uh, the sacrifices they make, we honor today. And uh, you know what? Every war has uh, has a negative connotation. It's uh, probably not good for anyone. But they still happen, and many, t- far too many of them, still happening around the world today. Well, and the treatment of the veterans, the ones that went over there, and, and you know, these these were just everyday citizens. These were your neighbors, your, you know, your teacher, your wherever, and you know, they signed up and they and they served this country. Yep. Uh, and you just used a phrase that was very common back then, a shell shock. I mean, we all know now about trauma, about PTSD, uh, and. <laughs> And I think we're doing a better job right now of, of, of understanding that that's what's, what our, our, our veterans went through and that's what they live with for the rest of their lives. But so did the people in those countries. Well, my, my, my mother, uh, you know, went through the starvation years in Holland. Uh, you know, they had nothing but potatoes to, to live on. and It was meager, meager existence. And so, you know, the, the citizens throughout Europe all suffered. Uh, you know, it wasn't just the military. It was... Uh, Every citizen uh, had to uh, do cutbacks. Uh, they were hiding Jews, in fact, uh, in, in our, our town. And, and some of our family members uh, hid Jews at, at great risk to themselves. So, I mean, there's broad impact uh, right across the board. And, uh, you know, those negative uh, connotations don't go away. But I admire the people that came back and actually had successful lives. My folks, uh, you know, basically, you know, raised the family and got on with their lives and moved to Canada and were quite how successful. Long after, how long after the war did they come over here? Uh, they were, uh, they, we landed here in 1960, so it was about 15 years yeah. after the uh, the end of the war. And so they had to reestablish themselves there and then, uh, you know, thought that Canada was a great, great opportunity to uh, improve their lives. Holland at that time was a, was a, you know, very, very difficult to keep people there because the, 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 the war had so devastated the country, they couldn't afford to keep people. So they're actually encouraging people to move to other places and the choices were and this is funny for me uh australia united states and canada and they they told us about australia when i was about 18 and i was thinking what were you thinking canada compared to australia <laughs> i mean i could see beaches and i could see lovely uh, you know surfboards and uh, you know nice warm weather but uh, never ever was there a moment of regret that they uh, they came to this country and uh, you know after the war and uh, and celebrated the great Canadian mosaic, which is uh, our our wonderful inclusive Canada. And they still celebrate the liberation. I mean, that's a, it's a big day for them every year. Every year, it's a big day in the country, and it's uh, you know we have a celebration here up at the yeah. uh, Saint Elizabeth's Village every year, and yeah. some of the uh, the veterans uh, come together and celebrate the uh, Liberation Day, which is uh, the fifth of. You know, you'll have to uh, April, I believe it is. Back back in that it's, day, it's the spring anyway. Yeah, anyway. and uh, and they every year they celebrate and they celebrate it right across the country. And uh, you know, I'm sure that that much of that happens in France and uh, you know all the other countries that were occupied in, the, in back in those days. And uh, but there seems to be a strong connection between Canada and Holland. And uh, you know, that's just never 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 settled down, never gone away. It's still very much a generational thing. The, the next generation picks up the mantle and uh, continues that level of gratitude. Let's talk a little bit about where we are right here uh, with Veterans Place. You have been on city council as, as a councillor, of course, and, yep. and as, uh, as mayor. Uh, you've seen uh, the, the rejuvenation of this place uh, it, from, from your early days, of course, uh, living here in this community. And uh, the work that this, the city has done here is really remarkable. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased. And, you know, I don't want to have to do it for another long, long, long time because we know the stories about previous Gore, uh, Gore experiences. So this one was a, a challenging one, but it, it was so successful. I was wondering if you were going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and having developed Veterans Place, which I think is a great, uh, great, great demonstration of gratitude for uh, 
for the city. I mean, it really is a demonstration of uh, the pictures and the images that uh, that people can appreciate while they're down here. But this has now become, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to see more trees, and those are certainly in, in development. But uh, it, it has become the kind of the heart of the city again that people can be proud of. Yeah, I was just thinking that as I saw the fountain when I got here today, and I thought, boy, those are, those are the battle days when they decided they wanted to, you can re, you can rejuvenate or you can mess things up, and there was a little bit of each in here. But the, they said you got it right there. Well, we did, and we, you know, it was a complicated one because we also had to do a lot of the underground services, yeah. and so uh, all of that was done at the same time. So it was a couple of years of consternation, but the end result has been terrific. And, uh, you know, the, the celebration of veterans in this space, is I think the rightful place to do this, right? This is this is the heart of the city. Uh, this is where people can come and, uh, and veterans can come here and appreciate their uh, their efforts uh, through whatever war they were in, and uh, and some some of our you know citizens can come here and remember, you know what it was all about. And you know what, many generations from now, they're they're going to be less and less informed about what's happened here. But I, I see that they continue to kind of share the information and pass along. What the what the Great War of 1945 or the end of 1945 was all about? One of the things I enjoy doing, and because I mean, obviously, where we live, and you know, I work in the west end of the city where the radio station is. Uh, even when I'm downtown, usually passing through, or we're going to a show or a, a hockey game or whatever the case might be, but it's it's educational to just stand here at Gore Park and look around and see what's gone on here. Now, I mean, we've talked about the park itself, of course, and Veterans Place and, and the work that you've done. But look at some of these buildings and look at some of the projects that are going on here right now. And you've always talked about that, uh, you know, t- t- cranes in the sky, construction. I mean, that, that means an energetic economy. And it's, yep. it's starting to happen right here on this street again. Well, it's, it certainly is in a big way. And so Leuna over here yeah. is uh, developing a couple of uh, condominium towers, one rental and one owned. Uh, right over here is going to be the uh, the next headquarters for uh, the Effort Trust, and they're going to put a, put up a new building there. And then some of the vintage buildings are are being you know re- replaced and renewed as well. So we're really starting to see the resurgence of what uh, what everybody remembers of the downtown in the 60s and 70s, which you know had all the major department stores, uh, you know the Robinsons, the Eatons, uh, the Wright House. Uh, we're all down here, and this was the place to be. It is becoming fast again the place to be. Uh, lots of activity, lots of, re- lots of restaurants, uh, lots of people working downtown again. Uh, you know, all these buildings are going to be filled up with people that are going to live here, and all the services they need are going to going to come come back into the into the core as well. And that's exactly what you want your downtown core to be. How did this happen? Uh, you know, many many years of incentives. Uh, the market timing right now is right. Uh, you know, the uh, the high pricing in, in downtown Toronto. Uh, you know, all of that combined, I think, got us to where we are today. And I think, uh, you know, it's now uh, on, a, on a curve that is uh, nothing but upward. So as long as, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the incentives are still in place, but they're starting to be scaled back. I think that the need for them isn't as great as it used to be. But we put them in 20 years ago. You were on council back then. And it took uh, the better part of 15 or 20 years for them to take hold. And people are now, uh, you know, taking, taking that on and, uh, and, and really doing the kinds of developments that the market will allow. The market ma- matters. I yeah. mean, if, uh, if there wasn't a market for these kinds of uh, condominiums and, uh, and buildings, then uh, they wouldn't be going up. But the, certainly the market is caught up, and uh, Hamilton is now that cool place to be. So we are, uh, we are to Toronto what Brooklyn is to New York City, I like to say. And I think that's exactly where we're at. It's, it's actually a very good comparative, actually, when you see what's gone on in Brooklyn. And uh, 
talking to some of the folks, like Steve Kulikowski from uh, Core Urban, yeah. of course, who's just actually one time I had him on the show, he was actually walking the streets in Brooklyn. So yeah, guess what I'm doing down here? And it, obviously he's he's importing those ideas when he comes back over here. Some of the great work that they've done. Yeah. But time and place is a real big part of this, though, isn't it? I mean, as you say, because I know the, the the desire to do this was always here. Uh, you, know, you and I still have memories of growing up here back, you know, going to the Palace Theater or the Capitol Theater or the Century around the corner there on Mary Street and grabbing a burger or the Chicken Roost, which was right across the road from us right now. Duffy's. Yeah. Duffy's. <laughs> okay, there was that, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Rock Pile downstairs. The rock pile, yeah. uh, all those great places. And when they leave, that, you, the question we always ask as a community is, well, what's, what's going to be there now? What's coming next? And for the longest time, I, we just didn't know. And we we all had ideas. Hey, how puts this? How puts that? But I mean, somebody has to actually take off the mantle and say, "Okay, we're going to do this." And it's incredible to see how this has happened. Well, you know what? Uh, Twenty years ago, uh, we couldn't get a bank to lend anybody money to do anything down here. Uh, that 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 has changed dramatically. Now there's all kinds of money available because the market is really caught up. Now we have you know musical venues that are happening throughout the city uh, in, in a big way. It used to be uh, you know a very few select yeah. places. Now it's spread out across the entirety of the city, and uh, that level of success, the restaurant success on King William, and uh, you know the, the amount of people that are actually going out uh, for dinners now. It, you know it used to be from Monday through Thursday you could fire a rocket through the restaurant scene and nobody was out there. Now Monday through Sunday. It is packed, and you, you need to get a reservation. And so it, it really is an indicator of the kind of quality of life that people are aspiring to and, and really uh, grabbing hold of. And, you know, my one theory on the restaurants is that millennials, uh, you know, haven't bothered to learn how to cook. They just don't want to know. And some of us, uh, some of us gray-haired folks, uh, you know, are tired of it. And, uh, you know, so we're all going out for dinner. And so it starts to fill up all the restaurants, and that kind of quality light matters. Also, the artwork, and if you look at, you know, some of the murals, and, you know, just recently we did uh, the, the utility boxes, and they've got uh, artworks uh, on yeah. them, that kind of placemaking and interesting, you know, things to look at makes, makes for an attractive place for people to come to, and that's why they're gravitating to these spaces. I used to uh, work at a radio station some years ago that, uh, in Jackson Square, and we overlooked the square, the, the upstairs there, which I hate, but I'll get into that in a second. Yeah. But I could look right down King William Street, yep. and it was pretty tired. Yeah. Uh, and and I remember that as, as a very vibrant street when I was a kid. You know, my dad used to get a haircut there, and so I'd, we'd be there every couple of Saturdays. Yeah, yeah. And I figure, how do you how do you bring this stuff back? Because other people had tried. There were, like, you know, somebody would open a restaurant or something like this. And my, my cousin Paul Reardon, of course, who uh, yep. you know, had the, 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 the store there for yep. many, many years, he, he I, I said, you were the last man standing, man, for the longest time. He kept plugging it away. He said, I'm going to stick this out. And it started to happen around him. Yeah. And well, it, it's, it's almost, it's organic. Somebody does this, and then somebody says, you know what, I'm going to I would say the, the catalyst for a lot of that is the Lister Block. So yeah, uh, the, absolutely, moment, absolutely. The, the moment the Lister Block was redone and repurposed, uh, Leuna did a great job. The city now owns it. Uh, it's got commercial space on the bottom. It's got some coffee shops. Some of our own uh, uh, tourism, Hamilton, is right on the ground floor. That that really became the catalyst for a lot of other changes that people were now starting to look at as, as investment opportunities. And that has spread right down King William, and it spread right down James. And, uh, I mean, that, that whole scene has really been kind of energized by that major investment that I think that catalyzed a lot of this work. Oh, you need an anchor, don't you? 
too. So, and, totally. and, you know, you had theater aquarius at one end of it, way down there, and we always thought, well, how do you how do you grow something like this? And you're right, I, the Lister Block was that other anchor, yeah. and there were, everybody else just kind of filled in the gaps there, and it's starting to happen. And now we're seeing, you know, housing being built on James, uh, you know, the Baptist Street uh, use and, you know, uh, Indowell project uh, that's going to provide affordable housing down there. A number of other affordable housing projects happening along James. Condominiums being built. I mean, there's all kinds of different variations of investments that are happening, and banks are now prepared to invest. Let's talk about the uh, the, the city center, the old Eaton Center. Um, we just talked to the, the people that are going to be the new owners on that right now. Uh, not quite sure exactly what they want to do, but have you had a chance to blue sky with them? No, I haven't met them. Uh, so, so they're just recent owners. I think yeah. I don't even know if it's closed just yet. No, but apparently I think, not. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, once once they're full owners, then uh, you know we'll we'll have a sit down and start talking about uh, the possibilities. And you know, what, we want to talk to them about the precinct idea. So yeah. the the whole arena, the the arena, the uh, the convention center, that whole that whole development, really could use the, the city center space as part of the overall package. So, if they're prepared to sit down and talk talk that through with some of the the players that are involved in this, I think that'd be the right thing to do. do so we, I look forward to doing that. Do we have infrastructure in place here? I mean, we you look at some of the existing facilities, Jackson Square and things of that nature, and the the old well, we called it the Stelcall Tower back in the day. Yeah. Uh, do you work around or work with that to try to, to, to continue this rejuvenation? Well, I mean, in, in that particular case, uh, you try and partner up and collaborate with as many people as you can, depending on, the, on what the, the vision is. And the vision is really about the precinct, not just about individual sites. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, we, uh, you know, we, we let people creatively look at, uh, you know, other spaces that are zoned appropriately. And, you know, zoning matters. So commercial zoning that uh, allows for condominiums development all the way along, the, you know, the King Street corridor. The LRT that uh, will will uh, you know it has been pre-zoned, so ready ready already zoned for higher density development. Uh, all of that can be done through policy, but then it really requires people that are prepared to step up and make the investments. You talked to me years ago about this core park, about the rejuvenation that was going on there, and there was a master plan. Mm-hmm. And if I recall, this isn't finished yet. This is going in the in the 1930s. I saw some old pictures. Uh, this Gore Park extended all the way down past the Kanaf. Yep. Uh, I, my understanding is that you're planning on doing that again. It, obviously, it's a phase process, though. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, the the more the more reach we can get with Gore Park, the better. We're also developing a new park uh, just off of uh, uh, Catherine and Rebecca. Uh, so a new downtown park that actually will will help uh, you know rejuvenate some of the development around it because uh, you can't really build anything unless there's some green space that's available. So there's a new new piece happening over there, and you know the opportunities to further along further east, uh, you know up into uh, Wellington Street for uh, for rejuvenation and redevelopment of this corridor uh, is is very real and is happening. So people are making investments and they're prepared to make is, some. Is the phone is ringing there? It is absolutely. So the the interest here is seems to be nationwide and as opposed to you know maybe you'll get a toronto developer or somebody like that i mean the, the word is out there like you know, all the trade- well it's international in many respects uh we we, we get calls for people uh, you know from from london and uh, you know new york city and the united states that are looking at hamilton and saying what's happening in hamilton i mean the, the, there's a buzz happening about hamilton across the country and i think across north america and people are really looking at Hamilton as where is that where is that next investment opportunity? You, you know, money goes where, where where there's money to be made, and so uh, they're looking at Hamilton as an investment opportunity, and that's a that's a positive step. That means that uh, you know some 
well-heeled uh, developers will come in, and hopefully we can we can manage the scope and scale of the development. So, uh, you know, one of the arguments we've always said is we don't want to be Toronto. We don't want to cut off our waterfront, which is why we staged the uh, development along the waterfront to can preserve the the views and the vistas that uh, that are there, and I think the same applies to our downtown. I think we're uh, we don't want to overtop the escarpment, and that, that's a standard we've already set. But beyond that, I think density is good. Uh, density provides uh, you know additional revenue revenue and tax dollars off of infrastructure that's already built. So the infrastructure that's here can accommodate all of this higher density, and that's good for all of the taxpayers because the more we generate off of this, the less we have to generate off of uh, increased taxes. How do you draw that line or, or create that tie, that bond between the waterfront and the downtown core? Well, and that's that's been the age-old question. So, so you know, some time ago we had uh, a, a vision of, of creating a corridor that goes through just past, uh, you know, the park that's just past the, uh, the Cops Coliseum. Uh, there's a little park out there, Central and then park. we have. Uh, is, yeah, it might be Central Park. Yeah, yeah. Central Park. And behind that, behind that, we have a, a civic building that yeah. we own. Yeah. And then across the street, we have all of that uh, that Tiffany land space, and so that becomes a corridor that we can start to develop into a kind of connection between the waterfront and uh, and the downtown. And I think. Uh, the, the Tiffany Lands is, uh, is uh, you know, earmarked for a film, major film studio, which would include, you know, hotel space and restaurant space that would accommodate all the people that are in the film industry that are coming from other places. And so that development, I think, would become an anchor for the for the waterfront, and uh, that connection through Central Park and through our building would be a great uh, kind of avenue to uh, connect the two downtown and waterfront together. And you're only a block away from James Street, and the, the, the rebirth that's gone on there has just been fantastic over the last little while. Yeah, it's been been excellent and uh you know more more on the way and uh you know we see every every uh, you know even those shops you know they they churn right there are there are people that come and go uh you know the pricing might get too high on lock street if you remember that happened uh, you know when it was first started it was uh used furniture places and antique places yeah. and then the, the pricing went up and so a lot of those folks ended up going to james and now, you know, the pricing there might be a little high, so a lot of them are actually transforming Kenilworth and Ottawa Street. And, uh, you know, that, that positive kind of regeneration, I think, is very good for those areas. Uh, gentrification is a bit of an issue, and, uh, you know, it does tend to, uh, in some instances, price people out of one location, but there is always other locations they can go to. And I think the next iteration will be Barton Street. Really? I, I see. I see people already investing in Barton Street. I see new restaurants coming along in Barton Street, and I think the uh, the, the next opportunity for people, uh, you know, on Ottawa Street or Kenilworth, that want to have a uh, uh, an antique place or you know, and something a little bit more affordable or an arts arts location that uh, they can live work in the same location, very affordable on Barton Street. And some of those things are already starting to happen. Do you need an anchor though? I mean, you've talk, every one of these projects you've talked about now. You, even the James Street thing, you'd probably look at Leona Station as, as the catalyst for an awful lot of the interest that started to show there. Yep. But, but what do you see on Barton Street? Where's the, where, what's the magnet there? Well, it tends to be the hospitals. And, uh, you know, they're a, they're a very strong magnet. I mean, there's a lot of activity that wraps around the hospital. So you, you can see that, uh, you know, the, the, the restaurants that come and the, the facilities that come tend to be closer to the restaurant, and then they spread from there. And so uh, I see the uh, the hospital as a fairly strong anchor for that location. 
fascinating to watch. Uh, yep. and, and this, the, I think your Perry is just frozen. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the bellwether I'm using. I say when yep. that turns to ice, we're out of here. We're, we're right. good. We're finished. Yeah. <laughs> it's starting to pick up, and yep. I, you probably have to get back to the office and get the plows out. Yeah, so, no uh, yeah. Not physically yourself, but at least order some. Well, I've got my shovel in. ready for sure. Yeah. 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 Anyway, yeah. Mr. Mayor, good cool. to see you as great. always. Thanks again, and Thank uh, congratulations to everybody at the city for uh, another great job on yeah, thanks. Thank everyone for coming out. Uh, you know, both at the uh, the Warplane Heritage and here and all the locations throughout the city. Uh, you know, lots of people showed up, and that's uh, very respectful and much appreciated. Excellent. Again, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberg. Thanks Thank again, you. Mr. Mayor. Thank you. We'll uh, do a quick break, and we will come back. We are uh, broadcasting live, of course, from Veterans Place in Gore Park. The Bill Kelly Show continues right after this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. And we are back. At uh, Veterans Place at Gore Park, the uh, crowd has gone, of course. The ceremony ended some time ago. Uh, we thank the uh, the Mayor, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, for sticking around for a little while. But uh, as we remember and as we also celebrate uh, the, the rich military history of not just this country but of this community, uh, we wanted to finish off by bringing Mike McAllister. And, uh, Mike is uh, with the uh, Hamilton Military Museum, works for the city of Hamilton, first of all. Thanks for hanging around, Mike. Appreciate it. Well, my pleasure, Bill. It's always great to come in and chat. Well, let's talk a little bit about the museum, which I, I'm sure a lot of folks maybe are not even aware of, but uh, it's been around for a while. It has. It's been around since 1976, as a matter of fact. Yep. Actually, it was opened by uh, Victoria Cross winner John Weir Foote, who uh, the armories that the militia serve out of now is named after. And uh, it, since then, it's, we've had uh, multiple displays, uh, including D-Day um, and uh, the end of the war itself, First World War exhibitry. Right now, it's a big focus still on the War of 1812 because that landscape, Burlington Heights, was a major uh, place that the British Army used and refugees used, possibly four to 7,000 between 1813 and 1850. That is a fascinating story. As a matter of fact, there's so much rich uh, military history about this community. Uh, and, and there are museums literally all over the place. I mean, you know, if to, and some of them aren't even museums, but I mean churches, uh, some yes. old buildings here with plaques of people that served that maybe worked in those places. And there's a story behind every one of them. Absolutely, yes. In fact, uh, yeah, we're, we're very active in, in recognizing those individuals, and uh, we do as much as we can to actually work with members of the community outside of the museum community, bringing groups in to uh, have them help us with exhibits, uh, the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. We've worked with both of those groups uh, uh, you know, to talk about uh, individuals that are, are not necessarily in the museum system itself or on Burlington Heights, but uh, are, you know, actually have their own collections, uh, whether that be plaques, uniforms, and equipment, they can contribute to the stories. What about our history itself? Do, do we do a good enough job of talking about that? You just mentioned the War of 1812. And, oh, yeah, that's uh, Stony Creek. Yeah, the battlefield park out there. And, but the stories about that war and what happened and where it happened. And, uh, we know about Billy Green, and the, the, that's a name. Yeah, yeah, I should look that up sometime and get the story. But the, this, the fascination there is is the people involved in this and, and the stuff. You can just walk down there and say, you know what happened right here on this spot so many right. years ago? Yeah. It, it's just incredible. It is. And uh, I'm, I'm actually at uh, Battlefield House Museum now. I, I was the coordinator of the Hamilton Military Museum. 
but we work with Military Museum as uh, kind of like a War of 1812 continuum. And some of the questions we're asking now are, are beyond red coats and muskets and, you know, the annual reenactment. It's about the cost of war, war loss claims and things like that, and the cost of the civilian population. If you were a civilian in and around uh, the greater Hamilton area, what we think of that as today, what, what was it like on any given day during the War of 1812? Because the British Army uh, was here for a couple of years, but the civilians are here for years and years, and their experiences. Uh, uh, have led to the, the creation of these sorts of commemorative institutions like Battlefield Park and Military Museum. And as we had the, uh, the anniversary, of course, just a little while ago, uh, we, we started to get some of the stories about what happened and, and how that, that, that army came together and, and what happened, not just in Stony Creek, but of course down to Queenston Heights all the way across the border. And, and uh, it's, 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 a, it's a remarkable story, and I think it's something that needs to be told a lot more. I think people really need to get a, 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 a grasp of, of the history here and what happened right here in this area. Oh, absolutely, and uh, uh, through uh, a portal, as a matter of fact, through virtual tours, you can, you can enhance your visit to either... Um, Battlefield House Museum or the Hamilton Military Museum by, by going online, as a matter of fact, and looking at the War of 1812 virtual tours. So there's one on the Hamilton and Scourge National Historic Site, the two warships, that uh, American warships, that uh, the city of Hamilton has a stewardship role in helping to preserve and protect, uh, as well as the Battle of Stony Creek is there. And, and then just life on Burlington Heights, and it's, it's a very cool thing to experience because you can see, it's really amazing to look at Dundurn Castle in the present and then switch screens to what it looked like 200 years ago, Richard Beasley's house with, a, with an earthwork and soldiers parading with women and children and indigenous allies on site as well. Uh, this, this, this area here that we talk about, the head of the lake here, and some of the incredible military history that goes on here, and a lot of it, as you say, is enshrined with the military museum. How do you obtain the artifacts, the things that you're, that you're using there? Yeah, that's a great question. For many, many years, from the 70s onwards, um, you know, in 1976, um, veterans who served in the Second World War were in their 20s or so. Uh, and so some of the collection was uh, acquired by donation directly from them and then as time went on as people get older and so on the collections were donated by uh, descendants of those people who served uh, and increasingly that is the case today uh, but we also have our eye on um, you know specific pieces we need to fill out our collection a good example at the military museum was a, a pistol a dragoon pistol marked 19th light dragoons and they were the only cavalry regiment that served in the canadas during the war of 1812 and the very interesting thing about that is that there were so few of them that it's very likely that pistol actually was on burlington heights where the military okay. museum is we have archaeologically recovered buttons from the 19th so it's just this, in, it's one of those occasions, Bill, where you've actually got something where it's this very, very uh, singular uh, kind of artifact that it's almost like it's come home in a way. The work, the authenticity of this, and the, the, I guess the, the research uh, to find out the story when you get a piece like that must be fascinating. Oh, absolutely. And we depend on staff inside, but also uh, outside researchers as well, colleagues. Uh, who, who have that special knowledge. 
for the 19th, for instance, uh, some of the documents ended up in the Library of Congress, and, you know, that's a long way away. Yeah. And that was actually a, a fortuitous find. Uh, the person looking for uh, actually wasn't looking for it, was searching uh, other documents and happened to run across it which was just an amazing thing. And so that was actually the story of an officer who had served in the 19th, uh, which, which kind of fleshed out a bit on how those troops were actually used for, 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 for positive and negative, actually. Dragooning was something that was used both on the Americans and on the uh, local Upper Canadian population. Sometimes the Upper Canadian population wasn't all that keen to participate, waiting for prices to go up, for instance, before they sold their goods or not providing wagons to uh, the British Army when it was retiring from the Niagara frontier back to Burlington Heights. You know, in part, people are on the ground and they're wondering what's going to happen next. Who's coming down the road the next day? Is it uh, the Americans? Is it the British? And in either case, uh, both sides sometimes cause damages to those people's lives, to their property, and so on. So sometimes they were a little bit, uh, little bit hesitant. And so dragoons were employed, as one general put it, in order to achieve their ends. Yeah. How did the population respond to that? Is, is, I mean, there's a, there's a battle going on here. Yeah. But, uh, okay, and we've talked about the military aspect of that, which it obviously is very important. But if you're a, a shoe co- a cobbler, you're, you're a business person here, there's a, how, did, how did they respond? How did, the, how did that impact them? Well, some responded actually really positively to it, and, and they did very well with government contracts and things like that. Uh, some also, like uh, Titus Gear Simons, for instance, uh, who was uh, uh, a major in the 2nd York Militia, whose coat, actually, two of his coats are at the Military Museum. He, uh, he, he served quite valiantly, was a, was a very, very strong supporter of the British cause, uh, was wounded at Lundy's Lane, for instance. Um, other folks, though, uh, felt that they were being exploited by the, the British military, that uh, some of them who were the victims of, uh, say, the Royal Scots who were at Burlington Heights and went out to local farms covering their faces in charcoal and, uh, you know, attacking local farmers, taking their pigs, taking their money, things like that. Now, this is a highly visible minority of a few percent but when you've got 1500 people 1500 troops and 10 percent say act out that's a lot of people potentially who are going to be affected by it so out of the war of 1812 canadians i think learned the importance of thinking for themselves learn they learned about dissent and that of course is not it's a different story from everybody join hand to hand moving forward to the great uh uh, governance that we have today. It's more about people thinking for themselves and wisely choosing um, their uh, their way forward. But I always wonder about that, uh, th- those that would push back and say, look, you know, we're not pleased uh, with what we've got here. Uh, was, were we ever at the point where there was the, the possibility of a, a Boston Tea Party here to simply say, well, you know, a pox on both your houses? get out of here yeah that's a great question um i don't think people were well organized enough to do that um and in fact the merchants that you would have seen leading that kind of thing during uh, prior to the american revolution uh, the boston tea party uh, the merchants in many cases were doing well because they were um you know well paid through government contracts and things like that it's the local farmers who were less well connected now in in uh, in and around the head of the lake there was an unofficial vigilance committee 
to take into account the that small minority oh, yeah. of people who were acting out and taking people's uh, goods uh, and so because they didn't feel that the British Army was doing enough to make that happen but the, the presence they had here was just remarkable and and we thought it would be reflected in our heritage in our history too uh, from Lord Simcoe all the way down and the impact that it had here after the war of 1812 uh, they were gone we they were gone back across the border. The White House burned down, as, as, as we know. That's that's the history of that. Right. Did did things settle down here then? Did, okay, we're we're used to this now. We're we're part of the British Empire. We're just going to carry on. What was the military presence like after that? Yeah, the military presence was vastly reduced, um, and in fact, military spending was vastly reduced, and it meant that. Uh, uh, people uh, did not do as well. There was a, what you could call it a depression afterwards, and uh, a lot of people have, were out of pocket from the damages caused by both the Americans, Indigenous allies, and the, the, the British Army. And so they were looking with their hands out, applying to the provincial government to to receive compensation. Some put in for thousands of pounds. Richard Beasley is a great example of that. He put in for uh, close to 3,000 pounds, in the end received about 1,300 or so. Some of these folks, though, in applying, did not receive compensation until the 1830s. Uh, and so a lot of historians would argue that that's in what fueled, in part, the rebellion of 1837 against irresponsible government in this province. Uh, so uh, <laughs> there's, there's still not a lot of love then for the, uh, the British in the way that they were being treated here. Uh, and obviously, that's that's something that I guess they had to reconcile with at the time. Uh, we should, by the way, I don't know if people even know where the uh, the museum is. We should probably mention that too. Yeah, it's it's on the site of Dunder National Historic Site, and so it's it's the gatehouse right out by York Boulevard yeah. and uh, and Dundurn Street. And you can actually you can get free admission to the military museum with admission to the castle. It's part of your your. It's a self-guided visit. It's the part stories of that I would and that particular site right there, uh, the things yes. that we've talked about there, and and you know we've talked about some of the other uh, artifacts that we see here. I mean, we are so blessed in this community uh, to have this rich history, but at the same time, we still have people that can tell those stories and and we have those artifacts i mean you know an afternoon at the uh, warplane heritage museum is 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 just incredible stunning and you, yes it's and and we see these sorts of things too i mean you know we're we're visual tactile people we don't yeah. want to just read about it sometimes we want to feel it and touch it you are so right and we we do our best to allow people to uh, visit and share with one another create their own social space where they can teach each other get hands-on try a uniform on reflect on the past reflect on their own experiences the experiences of their rel relatives many of people you know as we saw the big turnout today yeah. either know or have family members who served and and so those stories going way back uh, right up to uh, the present now uh, are so important in people's lives we don't obviously we want to learn from history but at the same time there's a there's a component here uh, it, it's important to tell these stories, and it's important for the city uh, to, to maintain uh, that 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 channel, I guess, of history. Uh, it, 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 I think it contributes an awful lot to, to civic pride to understand that. Look at the, this is what happened right here in this community. These these people that we write about in our history books in grade school, you know, this, this is what they wore, this is what they did, this is where they lived. 
it's it, we need to maintain that and, and that's, that's why i'm so glad that the city is committed as you are obviously uh to keeping those stories alive yeah you know one of the most common things we hear bill as people come into our museums is that you know i didn't learn this at school why didn't i learn this at school i didn't you know history maybe not have even been that person's strong uh, point but when they come to the museums and they're able to 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 look at the stories and, and look at look at uh, people's personal experiences uh, and and I think what they were experiencing at school was grand political movements which yeah. is not everybody's cup of tea no, as, no. as we know but when it gets down to being able to relate yourself to someone's lifestyle um, 40 years ago or 200 years ago you know that's what we try and emphasize and then as you say get hands-on that is exactly the way to go that's 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 how you remember I mean and, and to understand that uh, I like, you know, you're right. I mean, in school we learned about what the politicians said and what this guy did yeah. here. And, uh, in your places, you learn what people were doing. Yeah. And that's that's what we are. And that's, I think, how we can relate to them even that much better. Uh, great work that you guys do. Keep it up, please, uh, because we, we need to tell those stories. We need to have other people find out about those stories. There's new Hamiltonians every day now coming into the city. Yes. It's a great place to live. Uh, and it's important for them to learn the heritage here, too. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. Bill. Pleasure to meet you. Th thanks so much for coming in and keep doing what you're doing, okay? Absolutely. Mike McAllister, of course, uh, from the uh, Hamilton Military Museum and, of course, the uh, Battlefield House as well. Uh, I think we're just about done here. Uh, <laughs> the thing is just about blowing away here now. The, the weather is picking it up. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, thanks to everybody involved in the uh, process. We talked to Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger about this just a little while ago. We thank him and the great work that the city staff are doing. Uh, thanks to uh, everybody on site here, to, to Glenn and to Ben and to Cameron, uh, to Will Erskine back in the studios, and, of course, the executive producer of our broadcast every year, Jeff Story. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks one and all for listening on 900 CHML.